Hello everyone, this is the North East Law Review Podcast. My name is Neve, and later on we're going to be talking to Dr Nikki Godden-Rassall, Senior Lecturer here at Newcastle University, about her work on Portrait of Women in the Law. But right now, I would like to introduce you to our guest co-host uh, for this episode, who's also a very good friend of mine. Do you want to introduce <laughs> yourself? Hi, um, my name is Rajesh Shabak, um, second year law student. I am really good friends with Neve, um, but I'm really excited to do this podcast. I really want to like encourage more women in law. Um, and I, Nikki's got so much to say. I'm yeah. really, really, really excited. Yeah, so, yeah, no, same, absolutely. And um, when you were said thinking, oh, when I do an episode, I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll get in on that as well. <laughs> so, how has your year been? Because the listeners have kind of heard about, you know, uh, snippets of how my year's been. But how's your year been? How's uni? Have you found online uni? How are you feeling about exams? Well, um, you know what? I kind of like online uni up to an extent so I'm really excited to get back into like campus um not those 9am lectures <laughs> but I'm excited to get back into lectures and stuff or, like just campus in general but I kind of like it I do my work in my own time um it's just been good and I like things that open a bit you know it's just a little bit better isn't it you get to do your work you get to go out you get to do a little bit of everything yeah sometimes I think being online is easier to get a balance um, yeah, exactly. of work and life but also um you'd never leave the house so <laughs> it's sometimes it's nice to go to lectures and sit and like just you know have those chats yeah, before and yeah. it'd be spontaneous and then you just go for a coffee and yeah. to the library together afterwards whereas it, everything takes pre-planning it's, yeah oh, I've booked the library are you gonna come <laughs> oh I want to but there's no space <laughs> yeah oh I don't like booking the library I think that I know this sounds weird, but I feel like if I don't see a library booking available, it's a sign for me not to go to the library. <laughs> no, I get in. I'm literally there because you can only book them like two days in advance. I'm there like two days before making sure I get the exact seat that I want. <laughs> but no. Well, sounds like you've had a good year. Yeah, so have I. I, I, do, so, I do have been really liking it. I guess now that we're all introduced, uh, we can talk to Nikki about her work. Yep. <laughs> Well, hi Nikki, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I'm really delighted. No, it's, it's, it's great to have you on. Um, so we'll jump straight into the questions. Um, so do you want to introduce yourself uh, to the listeners um, about who you are, what you do at Newcastle, your background about growing up and things like that? Um, okay, so I'm Dr Nikki Godden-Russell. I joined Newcastle Law School back in 2012. My research expertise is in the areas of sexual violence, law and justice, and um, I spent some time thinking and writing about different ways sexual violence survivors can get a sense of justice, whether that's through using civil law or restorative justice as opposed to and primarily or only criminal law. Um, and I've also more recently started looking at the visual representation of women in law, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, before Newcastle, I did my PhD and master's at Durham University and did my undergraduate at Leicester. So I came up to the Northeast in 2008, um, but I love it here. I'm very happy, happy in the Northeast in Newcastle. 
No, you very much wanted to stay stay in Newcastle. I think you get a lot of that from the uh, lecturers who have spoken to. They yeah. always come and then they never want to leave. <laughs> but it's a great city. You know, it's not a huge city, but what we have here is, you know, is great in terms of yeah, definitely plenty to do in terms of culture. And we're not that far from, from the coast and there's lovely walks up in Northumberland. It feels like you've got a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so um, what do you teach at Newcastle? Uh, so primarily I run, uh, I created this module on law, gender and sexuality. Um, so that's most of my teaching, but I also will teach on the tort law module and teach civil law responses to sexual violence there, looking at trespass to the person and harassment and the use of the rule in Wilkinson and Downton. Um, and some years, just depending on how many people have taken law, gender and sexuality, for example, and what's capacity I've got I'll take the sexual offences in criminal law as well. And how, how has it been teaching online this year? Oh, interesting to say the least. Um, you know there's some advantages to the online learning platforms not necessarily do, not doing seminars virtually you know it's hard it's hard work for everyone and um, it's just great that students you know, you know have been coming and have been involved and have been having discussions but it is just it's hard work and it's certainly not an ideal way to be to be learning and teaching and um, so hopefully next academic year things are going to be better but there's some really great things especially now you know move to campus as well there's different ways to do online teaching through you know the different mechanisms that we can use on there with the discussions and just the, the different layouts or I think there can be really good ways we can do some more online teaching um, in the future but hopefully a lot more on-campus teaching because I miss having all the discussions as well it's not just the teaching it's the conversations you have on the way to the lecture theatre with students and things yeah. that we're just you know missing out on. Yeah no definitely there's nothing worse than the awkward silence that comes in seminars. Oh my god <laughs> yeah and the breakout rooms. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so um, how do you find, uh, how do you balance your different work I and mean, like your favourite form of escapism from work? Um, well, I have to be fairly efficient with time, um, which is a challenge. I've got two little kids, so working from home, having them at home a lot more often over the last year, um, as well as trying to find a bit of time just for yourself is, is definitely a challenge and it is about being as efficient as possible with your time, um, which is a, a challenge, especially when you're trying to do research, because sometimes going, right, this half a day is when I'm going to sit down and research and write. Sometimes that half a day is not where you've got creative inspiration and you're just exhausted. And, you know, that's certainly a challenge when you're trying to do research and writing alongside um, lots of other demands. And but I'll always try and build in time um, for things that I need as well, like just you know, exercise and shout out to my personal trainer, Georgina Hall, who's awesome. So, you know, that's always something I'll build in time for, some time for yoga and I'll make sure I've got it scheduled in. Um, so that's I think it's, it's important to kind of maintain a structure if you're always at home and you've got yeah. like a lot more time, it can be more difficult to guess manage that. And you've got to be efficient um, because you've not got that structure of going into work or going into yeah. lectures. You need to make things. your own structure, yeah, your own routine and like stick to it. 
Yeah, well, uh, that's that's great. Thank you, um, Nikki. So I guess that leads quite nicely to move on and talk about your research. So what kind of areas do you research in? How have you got involved with that? Um, so really, I started at the beginning was with my, I did a master's by research before I did my, my PhD. Um, and so that was straight from doing my undergraduate degree. I decided I wanted to go into academia. I was as an undergraduate, I was reading around um, more broadly areas of law that I was interested in, particularly you know, around women in law and just broadly speaking, you know, women have got a rough deal <laughs> generally and how law has been implicated in perpetuating that, but also how we can use law to try and address gender injustices. And um, so that took me on to do my master's, which is on civil justice um, for sexual violence survivors and then um, my PhD. Um, and bringing me to Newcastle. So primarily my research has been around different legal responses to sexual violence, like restorative justice and thinking how that might um, help address the harms of sexual violence um, or reproduce them further, uh, as well as using tort law to try and address gendered harms. And then on top of that, um, after doing the Inspirational Women of the Law exhibition with Catherine Hollingsworth, I then got more interested in the visual representation of women in law. Well, um, is there any particular part of, the, of your area of research that you like or dislike or like um, you find difficult to research about or difficult to get your head around, um, difficult maybe to accept? I think there's, there's always a sense of frustration that we still have to work this hard to try and address yeah. gender inequalities and sexual violence. You know, the fact that this is still being having to be written about, still being challenged, still being fought for is, is always frustrate, frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, and there can be things which are very difficult to, to read about. In some ways you get more used to it and you know, being an academic lawyer, I'm not always reading harrowing accounts um, of, from individual testimonies as such, um, and maybe reading some dry cases about the standard of proof or things like that. So it's, you're not always doing that kind of reading, but, you know, there's certainly things which are hard to read and, and think about, um, but you do it because you want to try and think about how we can make things better. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it must be really frustrating sometimes to be that mm. angry to read things. And yeah. Think, oh, like you're researching about disadvantages that like you're facing yourself mm -hmm. that can be quite difficult to gra like grapple with. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of frustration and anger, but that can drive you on, and that can be a, a real spur and, and a good a good thing. Um, and it's just channeling that anger in, in the most appropriate ways. It can make you more determined really to make a change or put your little effort in to help someone or do something. Yeah, definitely. So how do you kind of compile your research into a journal article? How um, do you kind of go about that? What about it do you like and dislike? It depends on you know, the type of project. There's an empirical project, but the kind of way I'd set that up is very different to a an article which is more theoretical. So if I'm doing something that's um, desk-based study, it is more sitting down and it is reading the literature and getting to grips with um, case law and having, at the beginning, obviously, research questions. Some, what is it you want to find out and write about? 
and then start writing and just keep keep writing thoughts and critiques of what you're reading and writing and um eventually something begins to take shape it's very difficult to explain that kind of process as such whereas when you're doing if you're doing a more empirical project it's got to be much more structured you need to have done the literature review um, and know where the gaps are and what it is you want to find out and have your research questions but be much more specific about methodology and how you're going to achieve those and then you know the limitations um, and benefits of the methods you're using to answer your questions um, whereas when you're doing something more theoretical uh, you can sometimes just get get lost in the middle of the literature and that can be the most frustrating part is you start off a new project and it's all exciting for like a school kid skipping to school on a new day <laughs> or whatever um, and then suddenly you know a couple of weeks later and you're just head spinning from getting lost in the literature and you've forgotten what it was you were doing and where you are and can't see the woods for the trees um but you know you keep going and you get through and it's it's just part of the writing and research process yeah no module choice uh for stage two is round the corner <laughs> everyone's now picking dissertations i've yeah, got some friends say. in third year who've handed theirs in which is really scary um, so <laughs> it's nice to hear like your experience in writing like a big chunk of work because I'm hoping to do a dissertation and um, I'm really looking forward to it but I think it's quite a daunting um, process as well. I've heard um, uh, people starting with like 10 pages of references and then right at the end to the like, end of their dissertation they're left with three pages of references because they've <laughs> cut down so much. Yes and it's just for these kind of, any kind of project like this, breaking it down you don't go away and read everything at once and you think about how you're going to what your key research question is and what other smaller questions you need to answer to, to answer the bigger question and then you can focus on one question at a time and that gives you more targeted reading and targeted writing and by the time you break it down into smaller chunks of 1500 words there's not as much as you think and you get those words a lot quicker than you expect. Yeah, you've just got to kind of imagine it as like maybe four um like smaller two, essays, like yeah. two thousand, three thousand word essays and kind of think of it as a whole um thing because I've said to you, oh you're gonna like my friends are gonna have to proofread and my, my friends were like, Yeah, we'll do that but in it's just not chunks. in small chunks, <laughs> not all at one go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I guess that, that gives us like a good um, opportunity to slip into um, your article, which is called Portraits of Women of the Law, Reenvisaging Gender, Law and, Le uh, and the Legal Profession in Law Schools. And um, for the listeners, the full Oscar reference will be in the description of the episode. So Nikki, could you like pre briefly summarise your main points and um, arguments in the article for the listeners? So the starting point really is thinking about portraiture has been used throughout history to you know, honour individuals and, and grant legitimacy and authority to an institution and reproduce or recreate institutional values. And typically, obviously, portraits and statues and names on boats or whatever are of men and celebrating and valorising men. So in public spaces, in law buildings, there's portraits of men representing not only who does law but the nature of law as very masculine so while we've got more women law students typically than men now still when you look at those practicing law particularly in more senior positions there are fewer women than men and there's lots of reasons for these you know 
um, it can be cultural in terms of the culture of law firms, it can be policies, um, it can be national government policies and laws around parental leave, for example. But part of it as well is because of law's association with masculinity and masculine values. So I wanted to look at portraits of women in law as a way to challenge the visual and actual underrepresentation of women in law and thinking about the law school as a really important place to do this because you know, this is where anyone who goes to work in law is going to, to is likely to start their journey anyway um, and that masculinity of law is reproduced in law schools you know law typically denies and marginalizes the harms that women suffer and reproduces women's oppression law books and cases are full of men more so than women um, and in terms of academia as well we have fewer women in senior positions so the law school itself contributes to reproducing and that masculine culture and masculine authority of, of law so I wanted to look at how, how important the visual culture of law schools are um, in terms of trying to challenge that masculinity by having portraits of women on the walls and to do so I then looked at the inspirational women of the law exhibition which Professor Catherine Hollingsworth and I directed back in 2015, um, which is an exhibition of 13 photographic portraits, which were launched at an event with um, a number of speakers, some of whom were represented in the portraits. Um, and it now continues as a biannual event, which we have um, also later this month, again, with a number of women speakers talking about their lives and careers and work with law for social justice. So that, you know, th that's what we wanted to, to look at. And we wanted to hope that the portraits highlight the diversity of women's backgrounds and lives and different ways of working with the law and to try and, um, and, to try and disrupt and challenge the traditional gendered stereotypes and hierarchies in law. Yeah, like I remember for myself when I first started law school, um, a huge part of like the encouragement that I got was from the portraits around the law school because it was a bit different. So um, often like it, even if you go onto like um, chambers and you look at the barristers photos, they're mainly um, older white men there's not really many women representation in general. So when I saw like women um, just dotted around the um, law school, their successes, um, especially like um, from the Bain community, I was able to see myself reflected in them. And it gave me much more like determination, but also like encouraging and comfort as well that, um, you know, there's people that, like myself who are successful and they became barristers and they became solicitors and, you know, it was really, really encouraging to see. I think it was a huge, huge uh, part of my experience and a huge, like, the best word to say is encouragement, seeing portraits around the law school. That's, that's so nice to hear. It means so much because, you know, this is one, one of the things that Catherine and I really wanted to get out of the events and the exhibition. Um, while we do have representations of solicitors and barristers, we try and have, we've got Pragma Patel, um, as an activist, he's worked with South Hall Black Sisters and, um, you know, we try and have women who've worked with the law in, in different ways, not just being the either step, you know, solicitor or barrister or, or judge. Yeah. 
which is part of showing historically women have had to work with law in different ways because they've been often excluded from law or marginalized or um, abused through and by law they've had to work with law in in different ways and um, but also to try and show students as well that you don't to work with law you don't have to have um, that traditional legal career path there's actually lots of different um, things you can do um, in the rest of your life to, to work with law in, in different ways. And the great thing about the exhibition as well is that it kind of it breaks the cycle of okay portraits um, like tend to be of successful people, men are more likely to be successful and so there are more portraits of men displayed um, and then that entrenches the gender imbalance and kind of doesn't encourage women to succeed and um, like overcome the barriers that they need to so I guess the purpose of the exhibition is to kind of break that cycle and mm-hmm. to say no there are actually a lot there are a lot of successful women yeah yeah I think one of the limitations of that uh, which I do talk about in the article a bit is about the individualization of this and it's not these individual women who are necessarily like just superstars who are amazing and have you know got where they're going by themselves they all are and have done amazing amazing work and had to work hard but it's women's collective action which has usually produced legal change and it isn't just individual women who manage to navigate the barriers um, by themselves to be successful so I think one of the things that we try to do with the exhibition and um, and through the events really when you hear the way the women talk it's very clear that these aren't um, women who would be saying you just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and, and get on it, it's certainly not that kind of road to success it's much more about um you know working with others and collective working to challenge structures and challenge practices to try and, and make make changes so with your article did you go um um like visit different law schools and yeah, kind of how nice. was your research yeah. and what was your findings from it yeah so I did some of that um I'd looked around a couple of law schools and to see what's on the walls. And for some, they just don't really have a lot of artwork. Um, others, it's, it's very traditional portraits. Um, or in some, there was kind of more caricatures of judges. Um, I also I tried to do a number of things. I tried to get views in freedom of information requests to find out what artwork universities held and what the gender balance was like in terms of the representations of people in the portraiture or who painted the portraits but that kind of information just isn't held on databases by universities so they weren't really able to to find that information um, within the scope of a freedom of information request but there is also I can't it's it's changed its name now and I've forgotten what the, the name is of the, pub, the public website which has the a list of um, oil paintings that are in public buildings, including universities. So I used that website to, to track down at least what oil paintings were represented um, in universities. Um, and, you know, broad, generally speaking, the outcome is that unsurprisingly, there's lots of portraits of men in law and not so many of women in law. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think this leads on really well to the question of even though women are the majority amongst uh, undergraduate law students, why is there still a bias towards the minority? Why is it that uh, less percentage of women actually do get um, 
roles in the legal sector why do you think that's the case obviously there's many factors but what's, <laughs> what do you think is the main reason um, I'm not going to say I don't think there's a main reason I think as you say there's there's a lot of different factors, different factors of course yeah. um you know and some of it might be things like um rental leave policies and maternity leave policies which still broadly speaking um encourage if we're talking about um stereotypical man and woman couple it's going to encourage the woman to be off work for a much longer period um, and that's kind of expected and that can feed into perceptions when people are making hiring decisions um you know there's it leads into stereotypes about women as who are mothers being less committed to their jobs um, and putting in less time there's problematic cultures in law firms about how much time you should be spend working and overworking so there's this kind of thing called the coat on the back of the chair phenomenon you just make sure you, it's leave a coat on the chair so it looks like you're there and making sure that you're in the building and making it very visible that you are there working um, and for people who've got other responsibilities or families and we know that generally speaking women do more caring responsibilities whether that's of children or um, people who are unwell or who are elderly that that can have a big impact on their working life so there's lots of different factors as well as those general points that I've made about law being stereotypically masculine and male. Uh, so would you say that having visual imagery of women in law is as important as other initiatives to get women into higher ranks? So I think it's I do think it's important which is why I've, I've written about it I, I think it is something that can be done but it's you know only such a minor aspect of, of what needs to be done and really one of the concerns, I suppose, about advocating for more portraits of women is that institutions or companies could go, right, well, I've solved the problem of our lack of diversity. We'll just put pictures of women on the walls and then we don't need to do anything else. We've checked the box. Um, we've checked the equality, diversity and inclusion box and we're done. And that's a worry because obviously alone, this is going to be it's insufficient. There's got to be structural and policy and culture changes as well but I just think this can be one part and play a role in securing an, you know, an element of culture change. And I guess this also links to the idea that I mean to play devil's advocate a little bit just displaying like displaying female portraits and having a good balance might maybe lead people to become blind to the the lack of diversity and the inequality that still exists because on a very surface level it looks like you know you've got loads of pictures of women there are women in like higher positions um but that might not necessarily be the case i get where you're coming from with that but it's not just in laws because if you take how laws represented more generally in culture and in tv and what cultural baggage students come to law schools with there's already preconceived notions about the nature of law, the masculine ideas that are associated with law about neutrality and impartiality, um, and that overwhelmingly law is associated with men. So I think it's unlikely that just having lots of more portraits is going to be able to challenge those, you know, long-held historical and deeply embedded gendered norms around law. Yeah, and it also doesn't help that um, our laws are mainly made by men. Um, like the, like the origins of our laws are made by men and then that perpetuates the cycle yeah. so exactly 
So I don't think we're at risk of, of overrepresenting women. So how important is it that there are female artists uh, make, uh, painting these pictures or taking these mm-hmm. photographs as well as um, like male artists? That's a really good question. And it's something that I didn't explore because it wasn't really possible to, to, to do that within the scope of the project. Um, but it's certainly an interesting question about do women artists bring something different to portraits or artwork more generally? Um, and I think that is not just women, you know, artists of different backgrounds. And I think that's something that is important. More generally, I think universities should be paying attention to the visual culture of their campuses and should be paying attention to what artwork is displayed on campuses and who's created that artwork. And I think it's re- that's, a, that's a really important thing which universities don't typically um, pay much attention to. So following the pandemic, I think there might be a much greater appreciation of the physical campus spaces we have when people are able to go back to campus and spend more time. And I hope that means there will be more attention paid to the physicality and the, and the visual on campus. No, definitely. Um, I, when reading your Oscar, picked out um, a really interesting point that you made about the Lady Hale's yeah. portrait in Grey's Inn and how she kind of broke the mould um, of all the typical portraits that they already had there. Like, why did you think it was important? Why did the mould need to be broken like, by a woman, do you yeah. think? Would, they ha- would there be a different reaction for the, uh, men, <laughs> like men were to break the mould? Yeah, I don't, well, I don't know if it necessarily had to be broken by a woman. I think it's just significant that it was broken by a woman and broken by Lady Hale. And it's the comments about the portrait that's so interesting. So it was, it was in 2018, there was a portrait of Lady Hale, which was unveiled at Gray's Inn. And she's depicted smiling, sitting behind a desk with um, a couple of red pens on it, which according to the artist, David Cobley, is to reflect her kind of common touch and personality but some have suggested this doesn't capture the, the respectfulness and intelligence of a judge, even though you know, she's, she was at the time the pre- president of the UK Supreme Court. But in contrast, more traditional law portraiture, which fits with portraits more generally, is ones where you have full length or head and shoulder type portraits with the sitter wearing relevant legal clothing whether it's a wig or the robes um their face is not necessarily directly forward it's often to the side kind of obscuring the individuality of the sitter to try and uphold traditional values of law in terms of neutrality and impartiality and reproduce institutional values as opposed to recognizing that lawyers are human that law is partial um, that there, there isn't such thing as complete blind objectivity, but which is represented in traditional portraiture. Um, so I thought that was you know, interesting, the, the controversy it caused just by a woman sitting smiling behind a desk with some pens on it. I think that would be like a nice point to move on um, to talk about the Women of the Law Exhibition and the conference that's going to be happening with the law school. Um, 
yeah so how do you pick the women who are portrayed so is there a criteria is there a cer certain type of woman that you look for certain type of women that you look for um do you tend to focus more on women who have a certain type of career like I know there's so many different like I was looking at um the women this year and there were so many uh, different types of women um that worked with law in different ways but is that what is that what you try to focus on to show the wide variety of women in law and ways that they have brought their own twist and their own um addition to law yeah so you've kind of answered your own question no well it shows that hopefully what Kath and I are trying to do comes across is that we don't really have any criteria as such and I can talk a little bit more about how we've chosen the women it's changed a bit depending on whether we're looking for the port the original portrait exhibition or at one of the subsequent events but broadly speaking we want to be looking at ensuring we've got a diversity of women in terms of you know their background um or could be anything to do with age experience etc but how they work with law we want to make sure we have on each event we do we have women working with law in, in different ways um, but that's pretty much our criteria if you like for the original portrait exhibition we had a team it was a collaboration between um academic staff and students in law and fine art so it was that team we had um, a legal researcher Alexandra Vavravishuk who did some of research to try and find um you know women who we might want to represent but for the original exhibition we kind of had a other criteria like we wanted to try and have women who were local to the northeast. We wanted women who were kind of known UK-wide. We wanted international women. Um, we wanted women who were well-known, but we also wanted inspirational women who may not be so well-known to law students, but who within the legal world have achieved, achieved a lot or within um, an activist world might be well-known. Um, so those kind of things shaped who we had, as well as actually sourcing an image. So some of the portraits were original new um, photographs, which were taken by our fine art student we had on the team, Phoebe Mikkel Hatton. But if we were looking at historical women um, or women who we might not be able to photograph, we had to be able to source a suitable image. And if we couldn't source a suitable image that would work with the exhibition, it wasn't gonna be possible to include them. So there was, there was kind of lots of different um, kind of value-based, but also practical constraints, the original exhibition. But we've also had more students being involved. So one year we, we had students vote on who they would like to, to be represented um, in portraits. And we had um, alum, alumni from Newcastle Law School as, as options, and they, they chose who they wanted to be represented. Um, but other than that, like this year, it tends to be, it can be recommendations from previous years. So recommendations from previous speakers. And sometimes it comes from conversations with students. Um, it, just, it just depends um, really year on year. And obviously speakers availability. So sometimes it's, we've invited a speaker one year and they can't come till the next year. So there's already, for example, people that we've got on a list for as potential speakers for 2023. Wow. Um, and your the portraits, how often do you kind of mix them up, change them? Do you change them all at once? Do you mm. kind of 
take take one down and put one back up like how do you kind of decide that process well it's not necessarily just down to Catherine and I because that will come to bigger questions um head of school <laughs> might be involved for example thinking about you know what what wants to be done with the law school spaces um so we've got a lot more portraits than than are up on the wall so one of the things we did alongside the original big exhibition was a smaller exhibition, smaller in terms of numbers, but small in, smaller in terms of size as well because of space, um, of women, inspirational women who were associated with Newcastle Law School. So we had alumni, we had um, former students, but we also had um, portraits of our, some of our staff, like the cleaners, the library staff, and um, the professional services staff, some of them together as groups to show, you know, the additional you know the care work and the other work that women do to enable law work to be done and they're all part of enabling um you know work in law by women that's done to make changes for women so and we can't we just don't have the physical space in the law school to have everything up on the walls so we do have conversations um when we can about what should be up and um what's going to get changed but there isn't formal um, timelines or processes um, as such. Um, so obviously the event's come up very, very soon, but um, this year in particular, can you speak on what the uh, Inspirational Women of Law exhibition entails? So um, what type, like the different works this year in particular, the styles, the lives, maybe who, if you can tell us who will attend? Yeah, so I can tell you about <laughs> who's going to be part of Inspirational Women of the Law 2021. Um, we don't at the minute have plans for any photographic portraits to be done or sometimes we've done group group portraits um, following events because we're, we're doing virtually. We're not all physically in the same space. Um, so this year, I don't I don't know if we'll end up later down the line being able to create a portrait from this year. It may just be, be the event. Uh, so we have five women speakers. Um, I'm so excited to hear from next week. This year we have Madeline Rees, who has been Secretary General for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And she's worked nationally and internationally to advance human rights, eliminate discrimination and remove obstacles for justice. Um, she's specialised in discrimination law in the UK and has held various roles with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. We also have Fiona Borden, who's a legal affairs journalist turned social justice campaigner. So at the minute, she's a communications consultant to We Belong, Young Migrants Standing Up, which campaigns to end the Home Office's hostile environment policies. And she's also director of Impact Law for Social Justice. Our third speaker is Erin Cutliffe, who's a, a local solicitor. Um, who has worked for the Crown Prosecution Service. She's now a, a special prosecutor based in the Special Crime Division. And she advises on and prosecutes a, a load of different high profile and complex cases, including things like corporate manslaughter, gross negligence manslaughter, uh, serious police corruption and assisted suicide. Um, one of the cases she had been involved in, it previously involved the trafficking and exploitation of children, which resulted in the first convictions under the Modern Slavery Act 2015. We also have Carly Henley, who's a specialist family law barrister, a deputy high court judge and assistant coroner in Northumberland. 
So she hears cases as, as a circuit judge in high court level and has been sitting full time in the family courts over the last 12 months uh, because of the pandemic and hears cases such as historic sexual abuse cases and those involving female genital mutilation, um, abnormal illness behaviour, medical treatment and deprivation of liberty authorisation cases. And lastly, we have Natasha Shotundi, who's a barrister at Garden Court Chambers. Um, she's an elected Bar Council member sitting on the Bar Council's Equality, Diversity and Social Mobility Committee. And she is the co-founder and chair of the Black Barristers Network. And she's currently focused on improving the working lives of Black barristers, increasing their visibility and lobbying for change within the profession. So we have a great lineup of speakers and I'm really looking forward to it next week. And so we are. Glad to hear you're coming. <laughs> um, so just to, if it's okay, just to conclude, um, what do you think, like what else do you think can be done in law schools to encourage women representation further? So obviously this is a great, great start, but what, what else do you think can be done? Just at the top of your head. <laughs> um, if, we, if we're focusing on representation specifically to kind of narrow it down, yes. um, I think, you know, paying attention to making sure we have women staff and women staff in senior positions and looking at the university, what, what can be done to ensure there's more gender parity in terms of professorial staff, for example. And um, it's paying attention to the books and articles and texts that are used in law schools, you know, who has written those texts and what perspectives are the authors coming from and trying to have a you know, more diverse representation of authors, which can also lead to more diverse ranges of views and approaches on law, because very often in textbooks, law can be represented as neutral, as objective, as this is the law, this is how the law has developed, and it's developed in a very organic, neutral way, when that's, that's not the case. It's people who are marginalised, who fought for changes in law, for example, um, that's often written out of textbooks you know think why does law change how does it change who makes those changes who's instigated those changes and you don't always get that and um, so I think it's that's another thing that it's really important to pay attention to yeah I agree with that 100%. yeah definitely yeah. Uh, and my final question um is what kind of impact has um like COVID-19 and lockdown had on the your like your and Catherine's exhibition so obviously law students we've not been in the law school since March, March. 2020 <laughs> I think they might have got two I think they got a couple of groups of the <laughs> new first years in mm. at the start um but that's it so how has the exhibition been impacted by the pandemic well I think like everything else and um, just the way everyone works in the environment in which People are working for many people has, has changed significantly. Um, in terms of the you know, event, as usual, we've, we've advertised um, around the law school, but we've got our own dedicated website as well. So if anyone listening wants to look that up, it's www.iwlaw.uk. That has all the information about the original team and about every single event we've done, as well as um, digital um, portraits. Um, on there so you can have a look and, and look at those there but it's not the same and I don't think many students 
as many students will be going on the website to look at the portraits as when they come into the school and just encounter them in their everyday studies. Yeah, and that website will be in the description yeah. as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you, Nikki, for coming on the podcast. It's been really, it's yeah. been really uh, lovely to have a conversation with you, you and talk about um, your research. And we're really looking forward to the event, as we said. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thank really you. enjoyed it. Thanks very much, both of you. Yeah, thank you as well. Thank you for coming on. Thank, <laughs> thank good you. Guest Thanks. Host. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, so thank you, uh, everyone, for listening today. Um, I won't do, do the normal outro uh, because we're wrapping up the podcast for that academic year. Um, but if you do want to go and listen to any of the other episodes, there are 11 to pick from. Um of academics from the law school, alumni. We've got um, some, I think we have some solicitors. Um, so do go and check those out. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, Nikki. Thank you. Very welcome.